Sleepy Hollow is a place like no other. A place where the forces of good and evil collide for the fate of the world. Prophecies foretold witnesses destined to protect us all. But will they prevail? Armed with keen insights and the ability to see into dark realms. Well, maybe. Barb and Steve help decipher The Witness Prophecies, a fan podcast dedicated to Sleepy Hollow on Fox. Welcome back, Sleepyheads. This is episode 44 of Witness Prophecies. I'm Steve, and maybe you're just a two-bit genie bound to the crackpot who happened to rub the right lamp. Ooh, and I'm Barb. And if I may inquire, who are Scooby and Shaggy? Ruh-roh. Ruh-roh, but not really. Okay, so today we're going to be discussing the seventh Sleepy Hollow episode of season four entitled Loco Parentis, which was written by Zoe Green and directed by Russell Fine. And speaking of fine, it was a fine episode, I thought. Steve, what about you? I did, too. I really enjoyed this episode. And even though Joe kind of said, yes, we're really moving forward, you know, Joe Webb from last uh, week's episode, and yes, we are moving forward, but there was still a couple of uh, callbacks, shall we say. Yes, there were, weren't there? Yes, we did not leave the past completely behind this week yet. Not yet. But we're going to have a lot of fun talking about that, aren't we, Steve? Yes, we are. How about a recap, Barb? I can do that for you. Just before Molly Thomas's 11th birthday, her father, Mitch Talbot, returns from overseas military duty, wanting to spend time with his daughter and his former lover, Diana. Meanwhile, Diana is investigating a murder case that seems to involve the supernatural and she enlists Inkabod Crane's assistance. They discover that young women are being killed by a Bargheist, a demonic dog-type creature that can transform into a person that the victim would trust. Diana realizes that Mitch is still overseas and that the Barghast is using his face as a disguise to get to Molly. In Sleepy Hollow, Jenny Mills finds the damaged lantern containing the demon Job and quickly puts it in the dungeon surrounded by protection spells. After much verbal sparring between Jenny and the demon, she releases him in exchange for the location of the Bargheist so that Diana and Crane can save Molly. Molly has determined that Mitch is not her father and escapes into the woods. Crane and Diana find her, kill the monster, and save the child. Molly, while traumatized, is able to enjoy her birthday party and knows that Crane will have her back. She has much to learn about being a witness. Finally, Malcolm Dreyfus returns to his company, fires the board of directors, and delights in being immortal. An annoyed Job appears behind him, and Dreyfus states that he knows he must change the world for the better. But what exactly does that mean? Yeah, don't think it's for the better as far as the rest of the world's concerned. Yeah, I'm inclined (laughs) to agree with you on that one. And we'll have fun speculating about that, too. But before we do that, Steve, I'm going to guess you've got some news for us this week, don't you? Oh, absolutely. Uh, We've got Live Plus 7-Day ratings for Episode 5, Blood from a Stone. It was 11th and 18 to 49 percentage gain, going from a 0.5 to a 0.9 for an increase of 80%. It was 5th in viewers percentage gain, going from 1.8 to 3.261 million viewers for an increase of 79%. Strong numbers on the uh, Live Plus 7. Very nice. And that's what Fox is saying they're only going by. And 
course, the cancellation bear doesn't want to seem to realize that, but that's all right. When Sleepy Hollow gets renewed for season five, uh, ha, ha, ha. we'll let him know uh, know about it. Yeah, <laughs> that's can, for sure. He can crawl back in his cave and hibernate. <laughs> yeah. All right. Episode six, Homecoming. The preliminary ratings were a 0.5 and a two share in 18 to 49 with 2.03 million viewers. Final ratings were the same 0.5 and 2 in 18 to 49, with a slight drop down to 2 million viewers. Now, this week's episode, Loco Parentis, preliminary ratings of 0.5 and a 2 share in 18 to 49, with 1.83 million viewers. Down a little bit, but Barb may have a good reason for that. Yeah, unfortunately, while we were tweeting uh, live for the both, well, Mountain Time and then in California Time, a lot of the folks in Southern California apparently did not have electricity and were not able to watch the show thanks to the big storm that rolled in off the coast of California yesterday. And then it's also theoretically a long holiday weekend for people who actually get Monday off. I don't know what that's like. So I have a feeling that, that there will be more live plus seven views this week than there were going to be actual live views, such as what we normally have on that Friday night. So. Yeah, more than likely, we will have a much higher Live Plus 7 rating on this episode. Yeah, and, and now one piece of inf um, interesting information that I had picked up while listening to one of the other Gold Spiral Media uh, podcasts, which was uh, Remaking History Timeless. And one of the Golden Spiral Media family and friends individuals, Kevin Batchelder, had sent in a note to those folks because they're trying to save their show and get a second season. And he gave some advice on watching and kind of poking at the folks at the network to let them know that you're watching. And here are some of the things that he suggested doing. Number one, watch it live. Number two, if you can't watch it live, go ahead and record it and then go actually record it anyway. Uh, because he said, as you have indicated, the networks are really paying a lot more attention to the Live Plus 3, particularly, and Live Plus 7 viewings that are occurring in the audience. And so even if you watch it live, then go ahead and within that three-day period, just fire up your recorder, right? And go ahead and watch it again, because then that'll record actually uh, with, uh, you know, the cable companies and give them numbers that more people are watching it. Because unless you're actually a Nielsen family, that watching doesn't register on your own TV, but it absolutely will pick up when you've recorded it, you know, through your cable service or if you're um, downloading it and, you know, watching it some other way. Yeah, online or. Yeah, exactly. And he then there were a couple other things. He said that social media is huge and that the networks aren't necessarily admitting that, but that's what they're going toward. So tweet during the show, you know, show how you're participating, how you're supporting it. Uh, look at the, the network's Facebook page for your TV show. Participate on that. He, he said that there is a, they're putting a lot more stock into that now. What he also said is send notes to the executives and don't make it like a canned campaign that, hey, please save our show. He said send a little personal note. They may not read every one of them, but they'll certainly register that they are getting this type of social interaction from the fans and that it really does make a big difference. So those are just some of the things that our listening sleeping heads can do on an ongoing basis to help bolster the case for a fifth season. That's right. And Sleepy Hollow Addicts is also working real hard on that and has actually got a um, petition. A petition. Right? Yeah. right. 
So definitely look her up and uh, get a hold of that petition and put your name on it. Yes, we've actually retweeted that a couple times. Um, so you can also come through either Sleepy Hollow Attic tweets or through our tweets and find the petition and we'll keep we'll go ahead and retweet it a couple times so that folks can find it, but also send those personal emails as well. And that every little bit helps. Yes, indeed. So talking about keeping the ratings up, Steve, what kind of rating did you uh, give this episode? Well, I gave it 8.5 designated hitters. Nice. And I gave it eight Captain Beasts and his Smash Force teammates. Collect all five. (laughs) I like collecting those little things. All right. And our friend Justina, she gave it eight out of 10 putty that was silly. Loved how Green put that. (laughs) Yeah, that was pretty funny. So I think all in all, we thought it was, uh, looks like we all thought it was a pretty solid episode there. Indeed we did. Yeah, so let's go ahead and have some fun. And Steve, why don't you launch us into Team Witness and what they did this week? All right. Well, we open with Crane and Diana shopping for birthday presents for Molly. And of course, Crane is just absolutely flabbergasted by the, the toys of the day and, of course, has to compare it to his time. Where he only had a stick. Yeah, a hoop and a stick. A hoop and a stick. And whoa, if the stick broke. And I'm thinking, well, Crane, if the stick broke, wouldn't you go out and find another stick? How hard could that have been? Y'all were in the forest. It wasn't all plowed over way back then. Right. Yeah. And of course, Diana has to give him a little bit of a hard time and all of that as well. But we'll save that for Diana. She gets called away to investigate a death in the... Uh, Arlington Cemetery. So Crane sends her on her way, tells Diana he can handle it all. And of course, he has to take the presents back to um, Diana's house. Now, did any of us find it just a bit curious that the house was unlocked? Well, I'm hoping that she gave him a key. (laughs) I hope so too. But I didn't see one in his hand, but we'll handle it. No. But speaking of hands, we'll handle it. You're going to have to hand wave that one. Hand (laughs) wave. But we get some of um, Tom Meissen's classic comedic moves in this as he sneaks in and opens the closets, puts the bag of presents and stuff in the closet, shuts it, and there's Molly watching him. <laughs> Immediately busted. That was so funny. Oh, uh, and he, of course, tries to cover it up, and it just is comedy gold as far as uh Meissen is concerned because uh missing coat uh not this coat though no no <laughs> another coat so crane turns around and gets to help with molly's homework and of course it's in history which is puts crane in his orbit do you think it was a little passionate about that there just a little just yeah. a little <laughs> pounding on the table this is why we did this for him it's as if it was Almost yesterday, which it was. Yes. And he goes through this nice speech, and then he goes, oh, I'm sorry, what was the question? And it turns out to be, how many colonies were there? Oh, great. Thirteen. And she just looks at him like, can we get to this? I'd like to finish my homework so that I can either play or do something else or perhaps shoo you off, maybe sneak into the closet, take a look at those presents that are in there for me. That's something that a kid would want to do. Right. But she turns the tables on him and doesn't want to do any of those things. She wants to talk to him about being a witness. Oh, and she did, didn't she? Yes, she did. 
And Crane handled it really well because he started to say stuff. And then he said, well, except this really should be done with your mother here. But what I really liked was that, and, and that was a good call on his part because he's not the parent. Right. And it's interesting because, of course, you know, we're going to talk about the title of this episode a little bit. But in essence, he was being a parent without being a parent. And that's the role he has started down. And and I know that we've spoken before about how good Tom Meissen is in acting with children. We've seen this a number of times over the past four seasons. And he really connects well with child actors. And you can see their chemistry on on the screen, and he certainly has it with Molly as well. Yes, absolutely does. And it just goes from one uncomfortable situation to another uncomfortable situation to another <laughs> uncomfortable situation because there's a knock on the door, and it's Molly's dad, Mitch. Yeah, oops. Who are you? Well, who are you? Yeah. <laughs> very dis- very distrustful. Because, yeah, because who is it that is going to be knocking on the door when only a little girl is at home alone? I mean, because she would have been had Crane not come back with the presents, right? Right. Yeah. Absolutely. So I would be a little, uh, I'd probably be a little bit leery too. He's very protective. Yes. And we get this great interaction on the phone between Crane and Diana where he calls her and she goes, speak of the devil. I know I that was, was very call funny. You. <laughs> I, um, no, he's a witness. He's not the devil, Diana. Let's get, let's get our nomenclature straight here. Oh, got something here I need you to see. And Crane replies, oddly enough, I was about to say the same thing. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, quite an interesting uh, introduction into uh, Mitch. And, of course, later on in the episode, when Diana's taking Crane to uh, see the body, they get that the conversation that, and it gets very in-depth, Diana just, had a connection with Mitch and they hadn't even talked about having a serious relationship. And of course, Crane makes the comment that, yes, that's very rare. And um, you get another comment about Crane's son, Henry, not knowing his father and how much of him crazy for all those years and doesn't want that to happen with Molly and her father. Yeah, you can really see the regret Yes, that Ichabod has at that moment. And he didn't even know about his own son. No. And that was hidden. It was hidden. Well, he didn't know because obviously his wife, Katrina, didn't tell him. And I guess he died first before she yes. had the baby. So he never even knew about Henry slash Jeremy. That's right. And what was interesting was during this, and I think this was during the the West, it was during the West Coast tweeting, that somebody commented about that it would be nice to see, you know, Crane get some resolution for that. And M. Raven Metzner tweeted that, hey, hold on, there probably is going to be a little bit more out there in some future episodes. Uh Uh-huh. So we, I think we're going to get to see some type of ultimately it would be nice to see ultimately some type of redemption that may happen that may not happen but there is definitely going to be more interaction so i'll I'll be interested to see in what manner shape or form that takes place and hopefully it's not going to be that he's risen back as the as one of the horsemen of the apocalypse again but i have a bad feeling that's what it could be yes and of course during the conversation diana kind of thinks 
are you trying to get me and Mitch back together? And of course, he comes back hardly. I'm acutely aware of the consequences of leaving certain things unresolved. Yes. Particularly matters of the heart. Yes. And talk about a huge callback. With him and Katrina. Was it him and Abby? That was how I took it. Was him and Abby. Oh, that's... He never was able to tell Abby how he really felt about her. Oh, that's true. See, I was thinking it was Katrina, but I think you are spot on. Yeah. I do think it is Abby. Abby. Uh huh. Mm -hmm. I agree with you. That's right, because by the time he was ready to do that, she was with Lance Gross's character. Danny. Danny. Thank you, Danny Reynolds. Yes. So, yeah. So he never did say anything to her. Right. Oh, yes. I think you're right. I think I'm wrong. So that's the second thing that Crane is still regretting and having to deal with and doesn't want to see that happen to anybody else that he's close with. And yet that's exactly what happens in life. Yes. There are so many things that that we missed opportunities, things that we say, things we don't say, things that we regret. And that happens every single day. Yes. Yeah. Now, of course, after visiting the medical examiner and finding out that there were two other bodies, the first one being found outside of Sleepy Hollow, Crane kind of thinks that this monster is actually Malcolm. Yes, especially when he learns from Jenny that apparently Malcolm didn't um, (coughs) exactly bite the dust the way they thought that he did. Right. And And it was curious that Crane actually was wrong on that assumption. Okay, yeah, because I sat there when I looked at this, when when I watched this, and I thought, Crane is almost never wrong. I mean, he's always pretty much spot on. And I was sitting there scratching my head thinking, when was the last time he was actually really wrong about something? And nothing came to mind immediately. And I thought, huh, they've just introduced a new side to our favorite British character. Yeah. He was wrong. And that means he's just as human as the rest of us. And I thought, how very interesting of them to do that, that they're not going to allow him to be spot on and right in his assumptions all the time. Exactly. Yeah, Uh, that was real fascinating to see that that actually occurred. Very fascinating. And yet I thought, well, that's very real. Now, why haven't we noticed this before? And I thought, well, I thought, I don't know. It's because we just expected him to always be right and to know what was going on. (laughs) But he's just like the rest of us. He's never going to be spot on all the time. No. Yeah. So that was, yeah, I thought that was a very interesting a little change in the writing dynamics for uh, for that character. Yes, it really was. And it isn't until Diana gets another call that there was another body found several weeks earlier in Plymouth. And then that finally triggers in Crane's head that, oh, wait a minute, this isn't good old Dreyfus. This is something completely different. Yes. And, and then he, he had to rethink things. Yes. Completely changed his train of thought on what he was dealing with. And sure enough, it's a demonic wolf. And he knows right where to go to in the vault to find the book. And I was like, no, that had to be something that they brought from the archives. Yeah, he was running around on the upstairs there where they have the had the bookcases on the on that upstairs walkway. And I thought, wow, he's really learned where things are quite quickly in um, in this place. I thought, isn't that interesting? But yeah, yeah, it may have been something that he brought back with him. Oh, so that was 
quite the uh, eye-opening. And as he's describing what this demon can do by changing shapes and appear human, it automatically kicks Diana into, oh, this isn't, Mitch isn't Mitch. And she freaked. Yes. Well, and she did exactly what she should have done to prove that, yes, it wasn't Mitch. She called his base and overseas, and the guy said, oh, well, he just went on patrol five minutes ago. And you go, oh, oh. Oh, yeah. So they haul back over to Diana's place and find that she is not there. Yeah. But I think one of the other interesting things that they had done is how, while they were still in the vault, as Crane is doing his research before she, they realize that Mitch is the Barghast, he launches into the whole thing about Plymouth and the Pilgrims and the Mayfair Chronicles and how difficult their life was. And he just you know, went right back along his, his whole story of history with, of course, the one little twist. And that was that they kind of brought the monster with them from the, England right. to the, <laughs> the new young country. Right. And it was interesting that he also goes on and says that the story originated from medieval Europe, and during the Middle Ages, the Bargeist terrorized the Black Forest in Germany, preying on little girls, and the legend of this beast became known as Little Red Riding Hood. Oh, yeah, that was hysterical. I thought, how did you manage to weave that all together? Yeah, I know. You just threw in the Barghast as this monster dog, and you threw it into Plymouth, and you threw in the Plymouth Rock after you've just had the Philosopher's Stone, and you tied it into into Little Red Riding Hood. And I just was like, wait a minute, how'd you guys do that? I need to go back and watch that again. Yeah. And, of course, that that's when he said, mentions that the creature's deadliest trait is to adopt a human form, and then it goes quite sideways from there. Yes, exactly. Of course, he just happens to have feldspar bolts, which are uh, made from the same stone as Plymouth Rock. You know, that's just astounding how he just happened to have that with him. Yes. I'm now, thinking, I could see Jenny having that. Agreed. But, but not Crane. No, but, I know. So then maybe he brought a bunch of uh, Jenny's goodies back with him to Washington, D.C. for Jenny. Right. But, you know, one of the other interesting things that they said in there was that uh, William Bradford's young daughter was also a witness, that she yes. was taken and killed when she turned 11. And here Molly was getting ready to turn 11. And so this is when Crane turns around the first time he tells Diana and quotes to her from Revelation 11.4 about the, the the fact that they're witnesses and what is the biblical reference for that. Right. and. We haven't heard that in really quite a while, and he's going to do that again at the end of the episode as well with yes. with little Molly. So it was interesting to see how he's beginning to disclose this information, you know, the information that he learned when he arose from the dead 250 years after he died and ended up in a strange place called Sleepy Hollow. Yes. So he, he may be remembering how he learned and thinking, I'm going to have to spoon feed and share some of this information in the same way with both Diana right. and with Molly. Right. And of course, Crane calls for help and um, Jenny has to um, do what she has to to uh, 
get Crane the information as to where this Beast and Molly are. They arrive and discover that Molly has escaped into the woods. They get there just in the nick of time to kill the Beast and save Molly. And we get a great hug between Molly and Diana. And then she goes and hugs Crane. And talking about somebody almost completely lost, he looked like he didn't know what to do. And of course, it was because he doesn't want to step into those boundaries that a mother, daughter, father have. Exactly. And he actually looks at Diana and Diana gives him a nod. Yes, go ahead and hug her. Yeah, he was really making sure that he didn't cross inappropriate boundaries because he was not the parent. Yes. But he wanted both of them also to know that, yes, he would be there for them. Exactly. If and they needed so, him. Yeah, it, that makes it a very difficult proposition for Crane in knowing how far to go in, in which direction. But I think he handled it as best he could. Yeah, I think he did a pretty good job. I think he's very respectful of it because for two, a couple of reasons. One, because he wasn't a parent. He didn't bring up his own son. He's not. And he and I think part of it, too, is he just doesn't know where the boundaries should be. Right. That he wanted to be a parent. He knew knows that he wanted to be a parent. But he I don't know if he's 100 percent certain as to how to be one and how to interact with children that are not his own. Exactly. Yeah, I think so as well. And we see that at Molly's birthday party as he's talking to some of Molly's friends that are on the soccer team. About King George's madness. Oh, my gosh. And I'm (laughs) watching him and I'm like, they're kids. You don't talk to kids about syphilis. Hello. (laughs) They probably don't even know what it is. Do they even study that anymore in like, what is it? Health, body, I don't know, whatever they they call health, whatever they call it these days. Yeah. And fortunately, these kids haven't gotten to that point in their education yet. It won't be long. Well, they may they may already know some stuff, but they syphilis isn't something that is um, as prevalent here in and certainly not in the United States. I mean, it's not that it's there are other things, STDs that are discussed, but not syphilis. Right. But of course, he also pulls out the biblical reference again, as uh, Molly is kind of hidden under one of the uh, playground pieces and Diana's already found her and they're sitting there just kind of talking and Crane comes in and gives them the the reference and tells them that it means that they are in this together and she is not alone. And, which was really nice because he told Abby last week at the graveside that he wasn't alone either. Right. And I think that that made for some very, very nice parallels between the episodes. Right. Yes. All right. How about Miss Jenny? Oh, Jenny. What an interesting <laughs> week for Jenny. And I think we could have some future ramifications from some of the things that she was up to. Oh, yeah. So um, she was still in Sleepy Hollow and she was picking through all the debris from the um, from the explosion last week when they destroyed the Philosopher's Stone because she was determined she, had, she knows she needed to find that lantern because really, do you really want some kid finding a glowing lantern with a demon inside? I think not. No. So, yeah, so she was doing her due diligence. She found it. She took one look at it and went rot row because it it was apparently partially broken in the in the blast and she knew then that the, the demon would be able to escape. 
So she immediately goes back to the the dungeon that they've used before for a couple things. And she starts both verbally casting and then writing protection spells all around there. And then she does that circle of salt or ash. Um, And she got it just in time because poof, right as she gets finishes pouring that in the circle, out pops Job out of the lantern. He has escaped. He is free. Unclothed. At, he is as naked as the day that he was, I don't know, are demons born? I really don't have the foggiest idea. But anyway, I, th- I thought it was a very um, Harry Potter type vibe with the protection spells. Yes. I think there were a number of Harry Potter vibes in this in this particular episode again. And I think, you know, we've seen this a couple times now. So she and Job verbally sparred with each other quite a bit. And I got to tell you, it was hot down there. And not just because he's a demon from, you know, H-E-double-L either. Right. Oh, my goodness. At least she gave him a, uh, well, it looked like a little teary cloth towel to wrap around his uh, midsection. But once we saw ripped uh, Job out there, Twitter really lit up quite a bit, I'd have to say. (laughs) Yeah. Certainly during during the two time zones in which I watched this. And I got to say, everyone thought there were a whole lot of sparks between the, the two of them. Yeah, there was definitely, uh, I don't know if it was Sparks, but Jenny wasn't going to stand down oh, no. or be intimidated whatsoever. And I think that caught Job off guard and actually gave him a little bit of a respect for her. I agree. And so, yeah, there was some some real dancing around trying to feel each other out. You know, where's the weak spots? And, you know. Jenny would throw a knife or shoot an arrow, and Job mentions that, oh, you've been possessed by a demon, and we get that flashback. Yep, and that was back to um, Season 1, Episode 11, the same one we discussed last week. Yes. And in this one, of course, this was one of the videos that was left by August Corbin and all his things, and Abby and Crane watched it, and that's where they saw a 19-year-old Jenny possessed by the demon Ankatif, which of course is the one that you know they were trying trying to look for clues to get it out of uh out of Macy Irving. Right. And of course Abby was just stunned to see that that was her sister who was possessed by the demon. So that was our flashback and you're right that was our callback still to prior episodes. And to, and really a nice tie into last week as well because it sort of completed the circle. Right. And so she was a little irritated with him but she said, you know, you're not going to goad me into making a mistake. Too bad, so sad. She ticked him off. She got him mad. He got right up against his his little cave, whatever you want, his little protective shield, and the sparks were flying, and egads. So I do think they respect each other. I think they were well-matched. And I hope we get to see them battle again. And I think this is where, this is just the first round between those two. I definitely think we're going to see them go at it again oh he's not going to forget that he had that she imprisoned him not by a long shot oh no not a bit and he better remember that she is a (laughs) demon killer not a demon hunter she's a demon killer Killer, yeah so anyway so she did learn that uh, dreyfus was probably still alive or that he had become something else because when she challenged job and said hey i got a w in the wind column here dude and he's He's like, you so sure that Dreyfus is really gone, huh? And then he didn't have to say anything else. Then she knew. She's like, uh-oh, wait a minute. 
You're right. Mm-hmm. The Philosopher's Stone, it was the most p- powerful um, artifact that there was. So we got the Harry Potter reference again. And so she was pressing him for information about Dreyfus. And that's what really set him off, that he was really ticked about that, especially when she kind of threw down the fact that, hey, you know, basically uh, your little You're- buddy there was looking for an end around out of his little deal. And so what do you, are you basically basically his little genie type toy, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> a genie in a bottle. <laughs> You're a genie in a bottle. So uh, yeah, he that really infuriated him. So yeah, he's going to be back out after her. Now, once Jenny found out from Crane that Molly had been taken, and because of course Crane had ha- called her to try and get some help, how do we how do we uh, track this Barghast? And Job heard their conversation, and he only heard Jenny's side, but he heard enough to say, "Hey, you know, I can help out." So the bottom line is, you let me out. And I'll let you know where you can find him. And she's like, you tell me where to find him and then I'll let you out. But ultimately, she did go ahead and make the line, basically broke the circle so that right. Job could escape. And he was good to his word. He left her the map because he said an oath is an oath. I don't know. We're all sitting here. Jenny don't trust him. But she did. And he did what he said he was going to do. Yeah. And that's. Very unusual for a demon to uh, keep his word. So let's file that away as well as something to keep an eye on in the future. Yeah, but and it's interesting because I sat and I thought about and I thought, well, if ultimately they want the witnesses dead, why wouldn't Job just allow Molly to die? And I thought, well, okay, he wants to get out of that circle and go find his little deal, his little deal buddy. Malcolm. And so he's going to trade that in because he probably knows, hey, I can get the witnesses later or believes that I'll get we'll get the witnesses in in the longer term. This is just short term and I got to get out of here first. And that's, I think, probably where his head was. Right. And I don't think they yet have realized that it is Molly that's the witness. That's true. Yeah, I don't think we know that for sure yet. That's true. There wouldn't be any compelling reason for them to know that. Right. They expect Crane to find the witness for them. And yes, he has, but they don't haven't quite realized it yet. That's true. They would not know that yet. Although, well, I guess Job would know about Jenny being possessed because it's yeah, it's probably on that whole demon grapevine that they've got going. Um, <laughs> but he wouldn't necessarily read her thoughts then and know that Molly was the next witness. Okay, right. I can go with that. I can go with yeah. that. So ultimately, Jenny did make it back in time for the birthday party the way that she was supposed to. She and Crane had a chat, ta- obviously talking about Molly. Um, this is a strong little girl, but they got their work cut out for him. Yes. And she said, hey, listen, I'm afraid things will probably happen sooner rather than later because Dreyfus is alive and Job is back out there to help him out or do whatever. So we're probably going to have some problems pretty soon. Yes. Yeah. Indeed we will. So speaking about Diana and Molly. All right. We had a lot of interesting stuff and background that we at least got to learn about Diana in this episode. And first of all, she starts by trying to convince Crane that she can be the designated hitter and fight the monsters for her daughter. A noble move that any parent would want to make. 
But of course, Crane reminds her that she's the parent and not a second. So I think Diana's going to have a little bit of difficulty adjusting to having Molly be so closely involved. And I'm still not sure we're go- this may have been the closest involvement we see this season for Molly. Yeah, I don't but- know. I don't know. I we, we may see something else. But she made this comment before Molly was attacked by fake Mitch. Right. So she handled that remarkably well by the time they got to, I mean, she was completely freaked out as it was going on. But then I think Crane, they're experienced by her side. We're not going to let something happen. But yeah, she's got to be just terrified as any parent would be for their child. Yes, indeed. Of course, Diana gets called away from gift shopping to go investigate a case at Arlington National Cemetery. And I got to say, why? Why? During the dinner hour. Must we yes. see this like empty heart cavity and you know that the monster has pulled out the heart, right? And it's just like, yes. oh, come on, people. <laughs> I hope it, friends did it all the time. Yeah, I know. I, I should never have never eaten during that show either. <laughs> no, I did absolutely love the way Molly basically approached Crane about being a witness without really giving up any information as to what she's been digging into and learning. It's kind of like it's her way of getting him to almost prove to her that he is who he says he is. And what we discovered after the fact is that she's been doing a lot of homework on her own. Yes. And so I think she was just going to try and poke on him to see if what she has been uncovering is going to be what he tells her or not. Right. And after she's saved, well, before she gets saved, Crane actually tells Diana that, yeah, these her digging into this may have actually raised a flare that got the demon's attention especially drawing the symbols in her book. Yeah, and I thought that was interesting because to me that was sort of in a way a callback to what Pandora trying to summon all the monsters to Sleepy Hollow using her box. So, yeah, kind of like a telegraph, what the coconut telegraph line, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So you kind of put out these symbols and say, come on, guys, come and get it. But I thought what was interesting, too, is that at the end, Diana is telling Molly that, no, that's really not your fault. And they're going to have to have a chitty chat with her about drawing symbols and stuff. Right. And that was the other really big thing that I saw in this episode was that afterwards, Diana basically says, you know, Hey, I was trying to protect you from all this. I'm going to have to be honest with you. We'll be, do this together. Yeah. I thought that was very interesting to see Diana actually admit that she is going to have to start telling her the truth about what's going on and what she's having to deal with. Yeah. Because I strongly suspect that she, what she realizes that they're going to be monsters here and they already know that Dreyfus and Job are evil and they're still out there and that there is going to be evil and whether or not Molly quote unquote summons it or she, or it just comes and finds them, her daughter's going to have to be prepared to fight this. Right. Crane and Jenny can show her how, and Crane will be there with her to back her up. And it will be interesting to see what mantle she acquires now that she is turning 11. 
because that's when the witness acquired their their mantle. Oh, she so, could go to Hogwarts. Oh, wait, wrong. Yes, <laughs> wrong storyline. Sorry. But yes, it was nice to see that Molly did actually sense that something wasn't right, and this probably wasn't her father. And uses the excuse that she really needs to go to the bathroom badly to get away from him. And I think what was really great about that is that when she and Crane were doing her homework, more or less, and she started talking to him about being a witness, and he told her that she really had to use her instincts. And that's exactly what she did. Yes. Her instincts told her, we're in a car, it's dark, we're not heading toward a store where there's ice cream. No. This something is wrong. And so she tricked him mm-hmm. by saying, oh, cool bike you got me last Christmas, but the hoverboard is even better, la, la, la. Remember that? Uh, and, yeah, sure. And, and then it's, I've yeah, got to, <laughs> I got to go yeah. to the bathroom right now. Ow. And she was out of there. Yeah. So she is a very savvy 11-year-old. Yes, indeed. And she used her instincts, just what Crane told her she would need to do. No, I thought it was... Very interesting that, yes, we do find out that Diana and Mitch were in the military together and they had hooked up and it wasn't going to be any more than that. And that basically Mitch had been told that, yes, you're her father, but that's where it's going to end. But this version of Mitch wasn't ready to uh, accept that as he was saying that he had had some close calls and that made him rethink his priorities and that what's important is her and Molly now. And you kind of go, something's not kosher here. Yeah. At that point in time, I was like, I don't trust this guy. And he just, you know, when, and when we met him on the front porch, he he just, it just didn't feel right. And by the time, and by the time they got to that point where they're sitting there, I'm like, no, something isn't right here. This guy is, this is not right. He's going to be a bad guy. I don't think I can feel he's going to be a bad guy. <laughs> he's going to be the monster. And he was. He sure was. Now, it was funny how he said he would not get in the way of Ichabod and Diana. And Diana goes, oh, no, 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 no. He's not my boyfriend. <laughs> okay. Well, we know that that's not going to go anywhere, anywhere, anytime soon. And, and I don't think we want it to. No, we really don't. I, I don't want it to. Nope. He's got one heart. That may just be a love that just has to stay there in his heart forever. Yeah, I, I don't I don't want to see him doing anything. I, I'd like to see him as the father figure with Molly and right. have a different kind of love at this point in time. But yeah, no, no, no romantic entanglements. Yes. All right. Oh, yeah, it was very cool of Crane as they're in the forest trying to find her and they find the shredded hoodie and Diana just almost loses it right there and crane goes oh no 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 there's no blood here there's no blood here molly's still out there so let's go find her and that was another thing that was incredibly in- okay so a couple things one she's wearing a little red hoodie like little red yeah. riding hood and riding i'm like hood. really uh-huh. <laughs> but what was brilliant is that here this almost 11 year old she took off her hoodie and she left it there as a decoy yes which was brilliant wow this kid is smart Yes. And then I guess, what what was she hiding? I would say that it was like an uprooted tree, a big uprooted tree, and she was down hiding in the roots, and it kind of created a little underground cave or something. That's kind of what it looked like to me. 
mm-hmm. but it was dark. It was hard to tell. Yes. But she was, I mean, she was smart. And what I really enjoyed too was again, watching both Diana and Crane pull up those crossbows. So Diana learned that pretty quickly, I guess. Yes, she did. <laughs> but she was like, not my daughter, right? Yeah. Get away from my daughter. And again, I got that Harry Potter vibe when Mrs. Weasley, you know, was going after um, uh, Bellatrix when Bellatrix was uh, tried to take out uh, uh, Jenny Weasley. And she's like, get away from my daughter, you or not my daughter, you. And then, you know, <clears throat> witch on a broomstick. So (laughs) I I, I got exactly that same vibe, you know, get away from my daughter. And she, you know, she launched, she launched the first shot at the beast. Yes, she did. She did. I told you, it was just like all these little Harry Potter Easter eggs throughout this episode to me. All right. How about our fearsome twosome Alex and Jake? Okay. This was such a sad week. There were no Alex and Jake this week. They were in Department of Homeland Skills Training. And we miss them, but I know we're going to see them next week because I've already seen the pictures, the promotional (laughs) pictures. So that was very sad that we didn't have their presence, but I think it would have been hard to put them in when this was really a Molly-centric episode. Yes, it would have. Yeah. You you really had it. This was a Molly and a Jenny episode. And Job. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to be seeing Job for a long time, and he's evil. I don't want to see Job. (laughs) Yeah, that was um, quite the the sparring match, verbal sparring match we had between Jenny and Job. Uh, you know, we've discussed that earlier. And there's just something about Job that's got me completely baffled. And this is his keeping his word. And that, that just does not compute to me for some reason. And it's like, okay, we have a demon that has honor. No, no. Something's not right with this picture. No, because to go get that last piece of the Philosopher's Stone, I mean, he killed the one, the, the charlatan preacher for crying out loud. Yeah. So honor is, is I don't know, it, it's his definition of it, um, that he was yeah. going to stick to his oath. But I, uh, I don't know. Yeah. But I tell you, yeah, without a stitch of clothing. Because after what Jenny had done to him, because she was standing toe-to-toe with him, and you would think that, yeah, if he got out, he'd have taken her out first just to show that he was the strongest of the two. So very that definitely got me confused as to for sure what is his status in all this? You know, what is he actually doing? Because at the end of the episode, we see Dreyfus showing up back in his office. The board's all there ready to basically take control of his company. and. He fires all of them. And, you know, he looks horrible. Oh, my gosh. He looks like he's been through a bomb. Well, he was. And he yes. didn't even bother to change. He's dirty. His clothes are ripped. There's still blood on his shirt from where he was, you know, zapped by the piece of shrapnel and then healed. And I'm thinking, wow, what a fashion plate. Ugh. Like, oh, my gosh. And, of course, after he runs all the directors out telling them they're fired, Job shows up. And Dreyfus basically gives him up a big old hug, said, oh, great, you're alive. Yeah, but I don't think he was that thrilled to see him initially. I think it took him aback. I think that Malcolm thought he was rid of Job because he hesitated for a minute. When yes, he, took, he did. He's like, uh, Job, where have you been? I've missed <laughs> uh-huh. you so much. And I'm thinking, uh, yeah, right. No, you haven't. Yeah. And Job was clearly uh, irritated with Malcolm, although he kept a very tight lid on it. Right. So who knows? Yeah. But the, we find out that Dreyfus wants to take the world on a journey. 
and he has a powerful need to see that the world changes for the better. And you go, hmm? Uh-uh. <laughs> nope. And we see his face kind of go black veiny for just a brief second, and then it goes back to normal, and you go, hmm. We've seen this before. Yeah. And I can't remember where we've seen it or when, but I know we've seen this before. Well, we saw it when we start. Okay, we started to see it with those uh, with the Dyer, the Dwyer sisters. Right. So I know we saw it then when they started to crack up as if they were going to explode and go poof forever. Right. So the question is, why did that happen when it did? Was he being punished by Satan? Was it showing that he was under the control of Satan? And that he was about to be exploded if he didn't toe the line. I don't know. I'm not sure, but I yeah. think we'll find out. Right. And you almost have to think that, yeah, he made the deal with the devil, and he doesn't realize that his personal servant is actually the devil. Because that's the only thing I can come up with that would, yes, I can see the devil. If he makes a deal, he's going to keep his word. And that's the only thing that makes sense to me with that. So we'll, we'll just have to wait and see if that yeah. comes up. <laughs> that, yeah, that's an interesting thought. I hadn't thought about that. And our good old Bargheist. Our Barghast. Hast. Hast. You know, I, I sat there. I our listened. German's to, not too well. <laughs> yeah, I listened to Crane pronounce it a couple times, and I looked online, and I'm like, I'm not going to get this one right. Barghast. No, Hast. Yeah. Amazing how he can rip a heart out, and immediately the wound turns to stone. But that was just absolutely Creep. interesting. Creepy. Yeah. Because, <laughs> yeah, it takes millions of years to do that. Mm, naturally. Well, maybe this isn't natural. Clearly not. Now, I really am curious how it ended up coming over on the Mayflower. I would love to get a backstory on that. Find out exactly how it survived in the bottom of the boat. We're never going to find out. Trip. Yeah. We'll never find <laughs> no, out. No, we aren't. That's okay. <laughs> Though, of course, when we do get the flashback of the Plymouth Mass, we see that the demon turns into Captain Bradford to call the girl towards him. And then they turn and you see the captain himself come up with the, the men and you go, oh. I know the two of them looking at each other. The Right. The Bark Host is just sitting there like grinning like a Cheshire cat at the real Captain William Bradford, and he's dumbfounded, and his men are, like, looking between the two of them like, what? Huh? How can <laughs> this take. be? It's witchcraft. Get it. And we find out that, yes, it's killed all the other girls for sustenance just to survive, but it always has the desire to get the witnesses just as they turn 11. Yeah, so I guess Abby was pretty lucky that it didn't go after her. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, maybe Malik wouldn't let it go after her. And of course, this was another great creation by Corey Castellano. Yes, it was. So kudos to uh, him and his team for putting together that monster. That was a that was a very cool one. And when I uh, was looking up some information on on the creature, the drawings that are online were just about perfect to what they had, or vice versa. What they had right. was about perfect to those images. So, <laughs> yeah. very nice job. Absolutely. All right. Shall we move into side notes? Sure. Now, the, the episode, Loco Parentis, is Latin for in the place of a parent, and it refers to the legal responsibility of a person or organization 
to take on some of the functions and responsibilities of a parent, which is basically that was Crane who did that. The Barkas didn't do it. Well, the, no. it tried, <laughs> except it was going to kill yes. the poor child, poor Molly. But uh, I think that this is really what, what Crane is doing instead. Right. As awkwardly as he can. Yes. <laughs> yes. And endearingly. Yes. All right. Our guest cast was Kamar DeLarez as Job. Bill Heck as Mitch Talbot, Alexander Ward as the Bargeist, and Brent McGee as Captain William Bradford. And they did a great job. And we actually got a lot of our of Job this week as the guest cast. Yes. I'm telling you, the women were like, wah. So, yeah. <laughs> and I was right there with them. I'm like, huh, this is an interesting episode. I'm yeah. kind of enjoying this one. Yeah, quite a lot. He's a bad guy. Stop enjoying it so much. Yeah. All right. Let's move into theories and prophecies. All right. Let's do that. Well, I guess we were wrong about one thing, weren't we, Steve? We thought it sure seems that way. <laughs> yeah, we thought we were gonna. I, we we both thought that this week is the link is the week we were gonna learn what the link was between Abby and Molly, and we thought it was gonna come through Mitch, and that's right. not exactly what happened, is it? Not exactly. So we still have that mystery out there. And now we threw somebody else into the mix. Little Bercy Bradford, right? Because she was right. a witness. Yes. Or, well, she never quite made it to be a witness. Well, I guess she did because she had to turn 11 and then it attacked her. Right. So I'm thinking that little Mercy Bradford was perhaps related to, to Crane because she was from England after all. The Mayflower did sail and land at Plymouth before Crane was born because he was born in the mid, what, 1700s. And right. that happened in the 1600s. So maybe that was a crane link. Right. I would still be very interested to learn about Molly's ancestors and where this link really is. I guess we'll just have to wait. Right. I have a feeling we aren't going to find out this season. I agree with you. With only 13 episodes versus 22, there's only so much information that can be doled out. Right. And we're going to be on a fast train to whatever Dreyfus's plan is now. So. Yep. Not going to find that connection this season, I don't think. Yeah, I don't think so either. All right. If Molly is come of age at 11, like Hogwarts and Wizards, does she begin training in the vault? Mm-hmm. I think that's going to have to be her school. Yes. She went out and started researching it on herself. So they're going to have to start training her instead. Yes. Before she accidentally summons another monster. <laughs> so what do you think we'll see? Vault training time? I would like to see some of that. I don't think it'll be a lot, but I think we'll first probably see some with Alex and Jake and then some with Jenny and Crane. Well, you know, maybe Crane can just teach a class because Alex and Jake have a lot to learn still, too. Two. Yeah. <laughs> they can all be sitting at those cute little desks together <laughs> and he can have a, a blackboard in front of him and he can teach them. It should make some for some very interesting... And touching, if not awkward, conversations. Yes. But they're going to have to start teaching her something in addition to her regular schoolwork, which, of course, is probably one of the reasons why we haven't seen much of her anyway, because she does have school. Right. So I I almost I almost would think that they must have filmed that during a um, like a fall break or something like that to have so much Molly in this episode. I don't think we'll have a whole lot more, but who knows? We could be wrong. I could be wrong. Of course. What is. Malcolm up to now? Well, that's a good question. He believes he's been reborn. He believes yes. that he has to do something for the world. But did he get this idea because he's now 
firmly under Satan's control? Or is Job starting to tighten the reins on him to kind of pull him back in line? Because I I think that whole immortality thing, him giving up his soul, I think that that was on purpose because you don't break your contract with H-E-double-L. Right. Yes, I I think so, too. And it's interesting to figure out what Malcolm is going to try to do to put everybody in his frame of mind. And that just, (laughs) that's a scary thought. Because he's so (laughs) weird. He is just a strange character. But I still think that he's going to be a horseman, and I still think that he, maybe he would be the horseman of famine. He's not going to be death. He's not going to be war. Well, maybe he could be if he replaces Henry. He could be war. Right. And then there's conquest slash pest, pestilence. But I kind of think famine because maybe he thinks that he's going to help people by you know limiting their food supply or whatever, and we know he has a number of businesses. But otherwise, I don't know what else he thinks that he would do for people. Yes. But we'll find I out. Don't... And of course, now that Jenny has had to deal with another demon, is she going to get swayed to the dark side? Yeah, and see, she's been there before. Yes. And our team can't always be in lockstep, because if there isn't, there's no additional tension, right? I mean, that's just, that's writing. Right. And so to lure her to the dark side, he may try and do that. He may respect her enough. She may fascinate him with what she was doing and how she contained him that he may think, well, she'd be a real prize if I can get her signed up. And especially since I know she's been possessed previously. Right. So I would think that he may go on a little recruiting trip after Jenny. Right. Either that or he'll just want to get even. But he seems to be a demon with a lot of patience and restraint. Yes. So, yes, I could very easily see him becoming shall we say, infatuated with her. Yeah, he could. And because, I mean, he's too evil. He's he's a little demon. He's not going to have redemption. It's just not going to happen. No. There's no way. And so I think that in that he, and she wouldn't try to re- redeem him anyway. She's, you know, she's a demon killer. So right. I do think that he would try and go after her and try and get her to the dark side. And then if she said no, then he'd probably say, okay, I got to take you out. But I think that that was just the first of what will be as I think you indicated earlier, several altercations between the two of them, maybe? Yes. Yeah. I certainly think so, and looking forward to them, because it was quite interesting to see their little back and forth. Oh, there was definitely fire between the two of them. It was hot. (laughs) It was very hot. Most of our uh, hollowisms were (laughs) Jenny's this week, that's for sure. Oh, I think we had a couple other ones in there. Oh, yeah. We start with Crane, of course. I marvel at these wondrous items. Dolls that speak, robots that transform, putty that is silly. In my day, all we had to entertain ourselves was a wooden hoop and a stick, and woe the day the stick broke. Yeah, like I said, go out in the woods and get another one. Come on. <laughs> yeah. But that was <laughs> so Diana good. goes comes right back and says, shopping for an 11-year-old is surprisingly difficult. Too old for kitty toys. Too young for teen stuff. It's an awkward age. So true. It sure is. And then we get Crane's speech on founding fathers when all he was asked was how many colonies there were. What the founding fathers were seeking to achieve was nothing short of the grandest social experiment in the history of mankind. The formation of a government free from the tyrannical rule of kings. 
one that gains all its power, all its scope from the simplest yet most profound of concepts, we the people. And then he bangs the desk. Yeah. Oh, sorry. What was the question again? (laughs) How many colonies were there? Oh, right. 13. Uh, Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. It's actually a very easy question for my history homework. Yeah. Now, Diana's actually at the uh, morgue talking to the medical examiner. Guess we can rule that out as naturally occurring, I guess, but I don't know what that leaves. And under her breath, Diana goes, how about supernaturally occurring? Oh, yeah. (laughs) And of course... The line of the episode, as far as I'm concerned, is I'm acutely aware of the consequences of leaving certain things unresolved, particularly matters of the heart. And Jenny, of course, says to tell Job, I am not a warrior. I'm a demon killer. Nice. So nice. (laughs) Love that line. And sooner or later, I'm going to find the thing that hurts you. And when I do, I can go easy or I can go all in. And trust me, you don't want me to go all in. Boy, that made him mad. (laughs) Yes, it did. (laughs) And then this one really got him. We all know about the satanic deal he made, his soul for his success. But then he tried to do an end around. But I'm not sure how contract law works in hell, but my guess is that that would void his warranty. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You've grown attached to your abuser? Or maybe you're just a two-bit genie bound to the crackpot who happened to rub the right lamp. But that was a great line. (laughs) Yes, that was an awesome line. And you would just help us out of the goodness of your, oh, whatever rotted thing you have in place of a heart. Yeah, that was great. Uh, Yes, Jenny had some awful zing lines today. (laughs) That she did. All right, what kind of great history lesson do you got for us, Barb? Okay, there were so many to choose from this week, but I went ahead and decided I was going to stick with the Barghast. Northern English folklore tells us that the Barghast is a mythical monstrous black dog with large teeth and claws, gleaming red or green eyes, with a horrible howl, and appearing only at night. It was believed that those who saw one clearly would die soon after, while those who caught only a glimpse of the beast would live on, but only for some months. There are a few citations of the Barghast being benevolent. However, most stories are not favorable to this creature. Now, this, while this is primarily English folklore, the beast has been reported in Scotland, Wales, Germany, Belgium, France, Argentina, Mexico, and in Connecticut in the United States. The earliest known report was in 856 AD in France when the dog monster appeared in church even though the doors were shut. And then it disappeared. Isn't that kind of scary? Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Now, black dogs are or Barghast sightings have been reported from almost all of the counties of England, with the exceptions being Middlesex and Rutland. Now, the more one of the most popular places are the streets of Whitby, York, and the surrounding moors have had many stories about haunting by this terrifying specter. So here are a few of those sightings in the folklore in England. On Dartmouth, the notorious squire Cabell was said to have been a huntsman who sold his soul to the devil. Sounds familiar? When he died in 1677, black hounds are said to have appeared around his burial chamber. The ghostly huntsman is said to ride with black dogs. This tale inspired Arthur Conan Doyle to write his well-known story, The Hound of the Baskervilles. 
Indeed. Indeed. In Lancashire, the black hound is called Barkist, Guy Trash, interesting, Padfoot, that should sound familiar, the Grim, that should also sound familiar, familiar. <laughs> Shag, Trash, Striker, or Striker, or Striker. Now, all good Potterheads know that Padfoot was the nickname for Sirius Black, who turned into a Grim. So it would seem that this was based on the Barghast folklore. Now, the Gert dog or great dog of Somerset is an example of a benevolent dog. It was said that mothers would allow their children to play unsupervised on the Quantock Hills because they believed that the Gert dog would protect them. It would also accompany lone travelers in the area acting as a protector and guide. I don't think that ours in Sleepy Hollow was going to do that. No. <laughs> now, in Norfolk, Suffolk, and northern parts of Essex, a black dog known as Black Shuck or Shug, is regarded as malevolent with stories ranging from terrifying victims to being a portent of illness or death, right, to themselves or a person close to the victim. There are tales that in 1577, here it goes, it attacked the church in the village of Bungay, killing two people before running to the church in the nearby village of Blithburg, leaving claw marks which remain today. That would be some pretty sharp claws to leave uh, yeah. <laughs> leave them in a church, because I'm thinking that's in stone, not in wood. So what they said was, what is the best advice if you are alone in the misty moors of England and see such a black hound approaching you? And their advice was to pray. And I'm thinking, well, maybe you should have some feldspar bolts handy instead, and that would do the trick. Yes. <laughs> anyway, very interesting about this creature. Um, I'm going to include three links in the show notes, one to a Wikipedia article about the Bark Haas, one to the Black Dog or Ghost, and then a third link to the Haunted Spots blog, the Black Dog Ghost of Whitby, England. And you can read a few more stories that I left out if you are so interested. But it sounds like a quite a bit of fun English folklore. So, Steve, Another with that. Great one. Ah, thank you. So, Steve, with that, what kind of feedback did we get this week? All right. Well, Bestie Justina is back on audio, so here she is. Hi, Marvin Steve. Okay, so I wasn't as excited about this episode as I was last week, but it was still good. I'm going to give it 8 out of 10. Putty that is silly. My favorite part was Crane interacting with Molly, especially when he was helping her with her homework, but also the heartfelt moments that they had when discussing being a witness and how they're in this together. The monster of the week was pretty scary, but the way they animated him was sort of strange, like the way he moved was very old-time monster movie. I need some help clarifying some things. Was Dreyfus that crazy monster thing? And he could just shapeshift into looking like the dad so that he would be more trusted of a figure? Or did the monster come out of that lantern thing that Jenny had that broke and then Job came out of it? Or was only Job in the lantern? I got very confused on this. Because I only had time to watch the episode once. But I know you guys can help me out. As far as the Facebook question, since my current theory is that Dreyfus will become a horseman, I think he and Job are out in the world looking for the other three horsemen so that he can gather them all together and do something really evil. That's totally my current theory. Have a great week. Thanks so much, Justina, for that wonderful feedback. So hopefully she's got a little bit of clarification on the monster and where he came from. So it sounds like he came over uh, 
to uh, the new young colony on the Mayflower hidden away. And of course, he, he, he really wasn't Mitch. He has just been, I guess, I guess he's been floating around up in Connecticut probably for or around Sleepy Hollow in New York for all those years, right? Just taking out people right. one at a time. And just got called by the symbols that Molly was writing. Yeah, but he's been blown to smithereens, so um, hopefully he didn't stow away on a plane in modern times and send a relative over. Yes. And we also got some feedback on our Facebook page. Pam Woods loved it. This season surpasses my expectations in so many ways. Has the hashtag Sleepy Hollow Season 1 vibes, but has new and exciting storyline. Malcolm is evil with a whole bunch of crazy. Yeah, that's an understatement. He is crazy. Yes, it is. And we also got some feedback from uh, Linda, and she gave it 9.5, almost 12 years old. Wise enough to be a witness. Bad grammar, but there can only be two witnesses. Just now looked up the name of the episode in Loco Parentis. It's a legal doctrine, right, describing a relationship similar to that of a parent to a child. It refers to an individual who assumes parental status and responsibilities for another individual, usually a young person, without formally adopting that person. I guess we'll be seeing more of Crane and Molly together. And I'm sure she is right about that. Yes. <laughs> All right. And our Twitter, Facebook question of the week, what are Dreyfus and Job up to now? And Justina says, thinks that Dreyfus and Job will look for the other three horsemen so they can do something totally evil. Yeah, and I think we all agree with that. Yes. Yeah, it's going to be something, that's for sure. It is. We want to welcome our new followers on Twitter as well as Facebook, and thanks for all the retweets and interactions. This week's shout-outs go to Sleepy Hollow Writers, Zoe Green, who wrote the episode, Rachel Melvin, our wonderful Alex, Sleepy Hollow Addict, Tom Meissen fans, Pam Woods, Debbie Lamb, Katrina Walker, Peace, Love, and Hope, Annette Nugget, Lise Morales, Michelle McKeever, Kevin Batchelder, Deb K, Joyce Williams, Susan, Polly T, Pamela Edwards, Danny, Lawrence Griffith, Donna, Anthony B. Minnelli, Karen McDonald, Mary Powers, Jordan Dane, WTS Fan, David Dahl, Penny, Josie, Gretchen, Tracy, Brielle, Laura Cox, Lane, Mari Krishnam, Rebecca Mary, Judy, Jane, Justina, Catherine, Mac Jackson, Tricia, Mary, Gwen, and Linda. How can they get a hold of us, Barb? There are so many inner ways that you guys can interact. Our voicemail number is 304-837-2278, or you can go to goldenspiralmedia.com slash feedback, where you can use the speak pipe widget on the side of the page to record audio. Or you can also typey-typey out your feedback on the form. You can even attach your audio feedback. Now, our feedback deadline is on Saturdays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. You can also... Uh, Join in the conversation on our Facebook page, Witness Prophecies. You can join us on Twitter at Witness Prof GSM. Steve is at Salyer Steve, and I am at Tangier14. All right, we've come to the part of the podcast where we discuss visions of future. So if you don't want to be spoiled about upcoming episodes, run. Run as if the Bark Hust is coming after you and he wants to rip out your heart and then petrify your chest cavity. Okay, episode eight, Sick Burn. When internet sensation Logan McDonald comes to town, a supernatural infection hits via a viral video. Meanwhile, Molly has a frightening vision that could predict a bleak future. Can the team cure this curse before it takes over town? 
Find out next Friday, February 24th, we get Robbie Kay playing Logan McDonald. And He's- will he be an innocent or will he be Dreyfus's best bud? I'm thinking he's going to be wrapped up in the evil. I think so, too. Yeah. Because Robbie does evil so well. Yeah, it'll be interesting, too, to see if we only have him on one time or if he's, because if he's evil, he may be back. Right. I guess we'll find out. The following week on Friday, March the 3rd, we are going to have episode nine, Child's Play. Imagination and reality meet when a monster appears that resembles Molly's childhood imaginary friend. Diana realizes her daughter's life as a witness will be anything but normal. I would have thought she would have figured that out this week. (laughs) Yeah. Meanwhile, Molly gets her chance to see the vault for the first time. Oh, awesome. In the all-new Child's Play. So that's going to be great. She'll get to see the vault. I guess that's when her education will begin, won't it? Yes, it will. She'll get to meet Alex and Jake, too. Yes, she will. They're going to have fun. I think that Jake will have more fun with her than Alex would. I get oh, the yes. I get the imp- impression that Alex is not going to be kid friendly, but I could be I could be surprised. Yes, that's very true. Yeah. Episode 10 Insatiable, Friday, March the 10th, when one of Diana's mentors is targeted by a horrific monster, she decides that the team must channel all of their power towards stopping Dreyfus. Meanwhile, Dreyfus and Job have a breakthrough on a project of which Team Witness may not yet be aware. Oh. Hot row. Yeah. Got something going on that they don't know about. Yeah, now that's going to be, that'll be the 10th episode. That's going to be on Friday, March the 10th, and we only have three episodes after that, so while we haven't seen anything yet, it looks to me like this is going to go straight through March, and then it would end on, I guess the last Friday is what, March 31st, I believe? Right. I think so. Yeah, so it looks like we're going to go straight through, and then that's going to be it for this for our, this abbreviated 13-episode uh, season. So we just have episode then 11, which is going to be The Way of the Gun. Episode 12 is entitled Tomorrow, and apparently this is one that will take a look at the near future if Dreyfus is successful and could possibly have the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. So hold on to your britches on that one. And that will be the penultimate episode. And then episode 13, the season finale, will be called Freedom. And I am thinking with the way things are going right now, and again, knowing that uh, this still hasn't launched yet in England, where it has a very strong following. I think it's supposed to start this week, about the 22nd or so, right? Yes, 22nd. Yeah, so uh, then they'll start being, uh, they'll they'll pick up a lot more viewers that way. Um, And of course, after this is over, then there'll be Netflix. So I'm thinking the chances for a season five right now are probably pretty strong. I'm thinking so, too. I know a lot of people are screaming doom and gloom, but I'm really not seeing it. I think every Friday night, Sleepy Hollow trends on Twitter, and they're getting almost, you know, between three and four million in live plus seven. So I don't think it's falling down that much. No, No, I think they've got a good shot at this one. So. I do, too. All right. Please re- review and rate us on iTunes with good ratings and reviews. It helps other fans of the show find us, as there are other Sleepy Hollow podcasts out there. To subscribe in iTunes to any GSM podcast, go to goldenspiralmedia.com slash iTunes. Tell your friends and hope you're really enjoying our podcast. This is Steve, and in doing so, she may have fired a flare into the darkness, attracting the bargeist. 
which adopted a form best suited to gaining yours and Molly's trust, a father figure. And this is Barb signing out, reminding you that if you try and do an end around on your contract deal, you void the warranty, even in hell. See you next week, sleepyheads.